Section 31 of The Heirloom. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Heirloom by T. Duthie Lyle. Volume 3, Chapter 4. What the Trapped Sunbeam Told. The summer had passed away, Autumn and October in the great London world came in utterly bleak, cheerless, and chill. It was early morning, early, that is, as wakes the London world. Through its many arteries the pulsations of the mighty Babylon of modern commerce were beginning to throb anew, and the great torpid sea of human life again to wake and stir. Busy men in warm coats shuffled along the streets, or hurried from omnibuses, or rushed into their warm offices from hansoms, carriages, or cabs. Mr. Lumley was among these. As his business obliged him to quit all the comforts of velvety-piled, carpeted rooms, bright warm fires, a luxurious breakfast-table, to say nothing of the charms of his domestic circle at Lancaster Gate, for the dull routine and dry legal details into which for years he had been daily immersed near Lincoln's Inn Fields, he was uncomfortable, brusque, short-mannered, to all about him, and cold. Not that Mr. Lumley's phlegmatic, law-sodden person ever under any circumstances looked very genial, very jovial, or warm. It was one of those dismal, comfortless days in London without, on which he would definitely have preferred, infinitely enjoyed, lounging at home in a large luxurious armchair by a great fire, reading a novel, or punch, or the times, in his own comfortable, cozy morning-room. But Mr. Lumley considered himself a martyr, martyred, held in bondage vile, by the inexorable trammels and exactions of an almost lifelong devotion to the law, held in bondage to a practice worth many thousands of pounds a year, and that was the kind of martyrdom which Mr. Lumley endured. He reached his office, commenced reading his letters, but had not been thus occupied many minutes when a clerk entered and handed his principal a note. Rather snappishly, for it was carefully sealed, the principal tore it open and read, Number blank, blank street, mile end road. Mr. Lumley, sir, I respectfully enclose you herewith three portraits, of which, I think, if you can identify the original with any person who has ever been on the Vernwood estate, may lead to important results. I should not send this by messenger, were it not impossible for me, through an important affair on hand, to see you. Immediate action is advised. Respectfully, Keinrich Vandermulen. Folded carefully up, and enclosed together with the foregoing note, were three clear, well-executed portraits of the man whose personal appearance, and the surreptitious capture of whose physiognomy by the little ferret man, Paul Newgas, by means of the concealed camera, we have already shortly described, and whose name we have given the reader as Michael Gervoy. The lawyer perused again and again this concise, laconic note, then one by one he long and closely and thoughtfully examined the three carte de visite size portraits, representing three different aspects of the same face. Then he folded up the portraits and note, replaced them in the envelope in which they had been handed to him, 
threw himself back in his comfortably padded, well-worn, shiny office chair, and for several minutes was buried in the profoundest thought. Then he glanced at his watch. Then rapidly, one by one, he cut open and quickly read a pile of letters which lay before him, did it with that ready celerity and instant grasp of subjects, details, and facts of a man who had been repeating the same thing almost every morning for the last thirty or forty years. Then he struck twice a silver hand gong which stood at his side. The bell rang out with a silvery musical sound. Immediately a tall, intellectual-looking young man, his managing clerk, appeared. "'Mr. Willoughby,' said the lawyer, "'I wish to give you some instructions.' Then, one by one, he ran over some forty letters, giving rapidly his orders on each one, in a way that would have hopelessly bewildered and mystified any but the very cool, clear, clever-headed and practical man which Mr. Lumley's able young managing clerk was. And, Mr. Willoughby, will you please tell Johnson to order me a cab, and send word to the house that I may be out of town a couple of days? Yes, a couple of days. Having received his orders, the clever-looking manager respectfully withdrew. A few minutes after this, Mr. Lumley, in a handsome cab, was being rattled through the cold, misty, early London streets to the station from which passengers reached the far-off western shires. What with delays, stoppages, changes, and late trains, Mr. Lumley, for Vernwood was not too easy of access from town, was travelling a good part of the day, and when the train conveying him drew up at the little station of Vernwood Village, the earliest blushes of evening sunset and shadow were tinging and darkening the face of nature with a more weakened ruddy glow, and the shortening October autumn day was rapidly darkening to its close. There is something so utterly different in the appearance, so absolutely absurd in the contrast of a spick-and-span exportation from the centre of our great Babylonish life, when he appears among the rustic population of a far-off rural English shire, that the contrast may be likened by comparison to a polished gem set among rude stones, which have, as it were, been untouched by the finishing process of the lapidary's art. And it was something like this comparison that Mr. Lumley looked and felt as he alighted from the train into the rustic Vernwood world, near that fine old English home." but they knew the portly figure of the Vernwood lawyer, so perhaps, in the rustic imagination, Mr. Lumley appeared quite a harmless creature, great as he was, and not quite such a natural curiosity to be stared at wonderingly as a new, real, live importation from London would otherwise have been. But still Mr. Lumley was without that dual or plural adaptability which Kynrick van der Mulen, for instance, in so marked a degree, possessed, of being Romish when among the Romans, of being or simulating all things, all characters, in all situations to all men, the want of which makes the ordinary, everyday Londoner appear in rustic eyes as much of a thoroughgoing simpleton when he lands in some remote shire, as poor Hodge is caricatured to be on his occasional visits to town." When either of these two characters ventures from his native wilds, the one from the ploughed arables and pastures green, the other from the busy metropolitan streets, 
it is often difficult to determine which of the twain looks the most a fool. As soon as Mr. Lumley left Vernwood Village, he set out to cause the circulation of his cold blood by a walk over the two or three miles of country road which had to be traversed from the little station to the estate. But dreading perhaps the sinister recollections which attached to the mansion, he gave the house itself a wide berth, seeking rather to avoid its near proximity and to accomplish the journey which he had in view by somewhat more circuitous roads. A walk, which was not unpleasant, of upwards of an hour's duration, brought him a mile or more, from Vernwood Village direction, beyond the mansion, its pleasure grounds and park, till he reached a house picturesquely situated and somewhat uncommon in its surroundings, as well architecturally as in ornamentation and design. It was the residence of Mr. Price, who was, as we have before had occasion to tell, residing factor during the interregnum of owners on the Vernwood estate. It was quite late in the afternoon, or rather it was evening, the hour of the gloaming which preceded the night, when the London lawyer knocked at Mr. Price's porched front door. It was opened by the head of the household himself, who was quite taken aback at this unexpected apparition of the ruling power. We have said elsewhere that Bertram Ganot had ever been fortunate in the selection of his stewards, and Mr. Price's tested capacity and fidelity to his master's interests had already showed itself such as to raise him to a very respectable position in the acute and sharp-sighted London lawyer's esteem. A dark, almost swarthy, complexioned man, you would have said young man, for he almost looked young, and as a fact was scarcely halfway on the journey of life, and if, in a measure countrified, his mental grasp of affairs would to a stranger soon become apparent. With a mind fresh and not uninteresting, and although he might not be too superficially refined, there was nothing in him of the stolidity of the boor. Such was the steward at Vernwood." When Mr. Price undid his door, his eyes opened very wide with surprise at the sudden and quite unexpected appearance thereat of his chief. He might have thought the sudden appearance almost supernatural, but then Mr. Lumley's tall and portly person was very ample and substantial-looking, so it precluded all ideas of a ghost. The lawyer extended his hand, and as soon as the factor could collect his rather confused ideas and recover from his surprise, he invited his superior indoors. The hour was just about that which in middle or lower class households is called tea time, and around Mr. and Mrs. Price's frugal board were seated of various ages and in various ungraceful attitudes, from the baby to the heir, some six or seven noisy, boisterous brats of girls and boys. As the important-looking London lawyer entered the family circle, especially the more tender offshoots of the house of Price, their fingers and mouths plentifully bespattered with adhesive dainties, were eagerly, with the proverbial rapacity of youth, devouring large portions of the stuff of life, plentifully bespread with layers of molasses or jam, while those delicate impressions of which the juvenile mind is so receptive were being vented in a babel of shrill treble tones. 
Now, Miss Katie, if you please, leave my spoon alone. Oh, mummy, called out the eldest girl. Tim's taking such a lot of jam. No, I ain't, resented the four-year-older referred to as Tim. You look out, there's baby shoving his hands into the treacle jar. Such is a little sample of the conversation carried on at Mrs. Price's board. But Mr. Lumley's imposing presence produced markedly a quelling influence on this hilarious domestic scene. There are households, enter them when you will, into which no amount of prosperity seems to bring order, and there are households from which no amount of poverty seems able to drive order, cleanliness, and refinement out. I am sorry we cannot offer you any better accommodation, sir, excused the head of the house apologetically. But you see, sir, we didn't expect... Sarah, my dear, have you got any meat in the house? No, I haven't, James. Of course, you know I haven't. And you know, sir, to Mr. Lumley, our butcher's three miles away, but some eggs. So in the absence of any rarer and more recherche dainties, Mr. Lumley elected hard-boiled eggs and tea. The juvenile hilarity had become, by this time, subdued to whispering point, and Tim, Caddy, and the baby gazed on the great man with wondering eyes. But Mr. Lumley, while in sheer hunger he devoured with gusto his hard-boiled eggs, thought very regretfully of the sumptuous dinner which he should have been enjoying at the well-appointed mansion at Lancaster Gate, of his foaming dry cliquo, and the oyster soup at which his chef was such an adept, the roast grouse and orlatans, by the very flavor of which he swore, all crowned with just a nip of maraschino. French coffee and one of those choice brands of partagas, for which he paid habitually eighty shillings a pound. But whatever dignity may appertain to mental toil, only those who labor with their hands know the sweetness of plain fare. At length the unexpected guest at Mr. Price's table had finished his homely repast. All the time it was in progress, the steward had been puzzling his brains to divine what could have caused the lawyer to put in an appearance at Vernwood in this unexpected way. But the meal was over, Mr. Price was not left long altogether in doubt. At a sign from Mr. Lumley, the two men withdrew from what was the general living-room, where Tim was now entertaining the baby with cotton reels on the floor, to the adjoining apartment into what Mr. Price called his private or business-room. Lawyer Lumley carefully closed the door behind him as they entered, took a seat opposite his employee, then drew from his pocket the very envelope which that very morning he had received from Colonel Vandermeulen's messenger in town. Then he took out the three portraits, and silently handed them to Mr. Price. For some minutes the factor long and steadily examined the three cards. Then in the lamplight, his face full of meaning, without uttering a single word, Mr. Price very slowly raised his eyes, till, face to face, they and Mr. Lumley's met. "'Well,' the lawyer asked, "'can you tell me whose is that face?' "'Yes, I can.' There was, as he spoke, a quiet, deep mysteriousness in Mr. Price's tone. "'Whose?' "'Why, it is the likeness of Michael Sullivan, his beyond a doubt.' 
Michael Sullivan, who is he? Well, he was employed here, sir. Was employed here? When did he cease to be employed here, and where is he now? He left several weeks ago, sir, but where he is now I don't know. At what work was he employed here? As a carpenter, sir. He was a house carpenter by trade. What was his character? Well, sir, he was a quiet man and a good workman, kept himself pretty much to himself, but as to his character I never saw anything amiss. Had he a family? No, sir, he was alone, said he was unmarried, and lived in half of the cottage occupied by old widow Garish. At first he lodged at Brown's up at the West Farm, but some unpleasantness arising between them, I gave him the unoccupied rooms under the same roof where widow Garish lives, and she did for him. But do you know whence he came? I do not, sir. He came and offered here some eighteen months or two year ago, and as I wanted a good carpenter, and he seemed a steady man and a good workman, I have employed him ever since. Why did he leave? He gave no reason, sir, other than that he wanted a change, and said he was going to Chester. Then there was a long, silent pause, as the two men sat there in the dim, uncertain lamplight of the little quiet room. A pause during which Mr. Price, whatever was passing in his mind, said nothing, but waited further developments, and during which the lawyer's head was bent, his sallow face looking almost ghastly, almost deathly in the imperfect illumination of the dim lamp in its unusual pallor, and his eyes were long and steadily fixed upon the worn carpeted floor. Then again he raised his head. Who has lived in the rooms occupied by Sullivan since he left? he asked. No one, sir. They have been void. Old widow Garish has lived under the same roof, but she has occupied the adjacent half of the cottage alone. Then again Mr. Lumley relapsed into thought. I want you to drive me over to Gladborough, he said at length. I suppose I can get accommodation for tonight at the Prince's Arms. And that, without going into a further discussion of the case, leaving Mr. Price as much, if not rather more mystified than at first, brought the tete-a-tete in Mr. Price's little room to a close. In less than a quarter of an hour after that, the London lawyer and Mr. Price, behind the latter's fast-trotting cob, were passing along through the chill October evening air, along the road towards the clean little country town of Gladborough, some two miles from Vernwood. Then, after requesting the steward to meet him there again with his trap at nine o'clock on the following morning, Mr. Lumley soon found himself the only guest before the great, bright coffee-room fire at the Prince's Arms Family and Commercial Hotel at Gladborough, enjoying something more toothsome than poor homely Mrs. Price's hard-boiled eggs and tea. As Mr. Price, after wishing his superior a respectful good night, turned his cob's head round, and in his open smart little dog-cart made the best of his way homeward through the chilly frosty night air, many thoughts, many things, many conjectures passed through his perplexed mind. And that night late, when their brats of boys and girls were put to bed, he and Mrs. Price held a council of conjectures beyond their usual early hour of retiring, 
as they sat over the dying embers of the quiet country kitchen fire. It is almost unnecessary to tell what the hopes and fears and conjectures of these two good people were. Mr. Lumley did little that night but enjoy the warmth and comfort and glow of the bright cheery Prince's Arms coffee-room fire. There was one thing, however, that the London lawyer did do. It was near ten o'clock, and Mr. Lumley, having well warmed his outer man, and well lined and fortified his inner man with something more grateful and comforting than hard-boiled eggs and tea, sallied forth from the Prince's Arms yard into the dismal, dead-alive solitude and solemnity of the little country town street. Following two or three quirks or turnings, he found himself before a rather long, low, new-looking building of massive stone. This he entered, and there, although there was a good fire, in a rather cold-looking, rather repellent-looking office or room, around which in the shape of handcuffs, manacles, cutlasses, and truncheons, hung various trophies and implements of the human chase, before a desk-table, busily writing reports, sat no other than our tall, dignified acquaintance, Mr. Superintendent Whittier, who had, under such ignominious conditions some months before, taken so prominent, though mistaken, a part in poor Jules Massey's arrest. The superintendent was but little changed from the tall, kindly, dignified officer as we knew him, except that Monk, having quite failed to leave a whole garment on his official back, he had, at the expense of his country, to be provided with a completely new outfit of official clothes. But we mention this only incidentally, by the way. It was in the cold, raw murk of the October morning of the following day that the three personalities to whom we have lately had to refer, namely Mr. Lumley, Mr. Superintendent Whittier, and Mr. Price, again met. Although, of course, nobody had mentioned a word, nobody in the world of rumor ever does mention a word, yet in that inexplicable way in which reports and rumors generate and fly, dark sinister echoes again hung, as it were, like some uncanny contagion in the Vernwood air. But now, however, the malicious, busy tongues of slander or report over the Vernwood tragedy were forever to be stilled. After a short consultation in the cold morning, held in Mr. Price's comfortless little room, accompanied by a laborer with some tools, the three men left the factor's house and walked off through the Vernwood lanes. The damp and dripping dews of autumn hung heavily upon the hedges, the grass and the trees, as the three or four men passed on their errand along the wooded road. At last, after a walk of nearly a mile from Mr. Price's house, they reached the sequestered cottage now occupied by Widow Garrish alone. It was an isolated, sequestered domicile, thickly surrounded by, nay, almost buried in, dense, low underwood and high leafy trees. But, as Mr. Price had told the lawyer, some of the rooms, having a separate entrance, were now untenanted and void. The men gained an entrance, the house was furnished after a fashion, and here and there domestic utensils lay negligently placed about, having been left uncleansed and unused, imparting to the aspect of the interior a desolate, neglected air. 
First they ascended to the upper or domiciliary apartments of the abode, which presented an aspect much in keeping with those underneath. Commencing at once in a kind of upper story or attic, from floor to floor Mr. Superintendent Whittier instituted a thorough and searching investigation of every cupboard, shelf, corner, nook and cranny of the abode. After half an hour's careful investigation, the search for anything which could throw light on the sad history of the past seemed vain, and it seemed like being barren of results. The superintendent then directed his attention to the kitchen floor of newly laid boards, but although they displayed not the least sign of removal since the floor was remade, yet with the help of the workmen and tools, he set to work and one by one lifted them up from the joists, thus exposing directly to view the earthen foundation beneath. But strange to say, the earth beneath the center of the room seemed looser than the surrounding soil. Following the instructions of the superintendent, the laborer continued to delve between the joists down to the loose friable mold to a depth of several feet, while the London lawyer and Mr. Price looked on with curious and interested gaze. At length the limits of the loose mold narrowed down to about one foot in width, and there, carefully concealed under a heavy flagstone, Mr. Superintendent Whittier and the workman came upon what was a damning find, it was the damning, condemning, indisputable link which so seldom seems quite absent in the chain of evidence, the fatal blunder in the operation, by which the murderer seems ever, as if by some inscrutable law, some strange, unaccountable oversight or act of forgetfulness, to reveal his trail, for there, out of the depths of some five feet of loosened earth, was brought to the light of day a garment of the oilskin kind, which it needed no chemical analysis to prove, needed scarcely a second examination of the unassisted eye to determine, had been almost deluged with blood. Not only so, but rolled up in this garment was a long, murderous-looking bowie knife, of Spanish shape and make, with a lacquered ornamented blade, and it needed no further testimony to tell the tale of how, and by whose hand Bertram Ganneau, the master of Vernwood, had died. We need not pursue farther the details of that morning's work. Mr. Superintendent Whittier took charge of the condemning possessions, treasuring them with well-nigh as much care as if he had unearthed some long-buried crock or casket filled with precious ore or gems. But we will turn to another phase of our tale. Between the cities of London and New York, there is some five hours difference in time. That is to say, when timepieces denote nine o'clock in the morning in New York, it is, in London, about two hours past midday. Thus, when New Yorkers first set about their daily labor, the London working day is some five hours old. This difference forms an important factor in the work of commerce and civilization and finance, a factor which is, and is destined to make, an important item in the making of the Western world. Thus it was on the damp October day in the which the discovery had been made beneath the floor of the cottage lately occupied by Michael Sullivan, or as we know his true name to be, Michael Gervois, 
so great is the triumph of science and invention that almost before the New York world on that same day dawned, Michael Gervois, for having willfully murdered Bertram Ganot, was arrested in New York. But once again on the magic wing of thought, we will bridge over the rolling tide in the ever-shifting currents of events, of time and space, we have again once more to change it to an episode which is ever saddening, is deeply saddening whether contemplated in reality or romance. It is a size time in the county town within twenty miles of Vernwood. The entrances of the courts of justice are carefully guarded and closely thronged with an excited miscellaneous throng. There has been an eager overbrooding sadness, a morbid expectancy come upon the popular throng, for it is a foregone conclusion that one person within the precincts of that solid, massive, substantial structure must requite his sin with his life, for there, in the place of the accused and the condemned, for whom all the hope of this world has gone out and ceased, stands before his earthly judge, at last the true and proven murderer of Bertram Ganot, Michael Gervois. The dark man Jules Massey is there too, standing in the very same court in which so few, so very few months before, he was to have been tried for that very crime. But this time Jules Massey, even in court, the great dog monk by his side, instead of being prisoner, poses now as a principal witness against the accused. Jules Massey tells how alone, in the solitary chamber, in the silence of the moonlit summer night, he watched by his sick, raving, perhaps dying master's side. In graphic language, he tells of his late master's wild vision of his delirium, the dead white hand, of the raving, delirious patient's dark presentiment of evil, such as by some western Indian witch-doctress had been foretold to him in the wild, mystic jargon of witchcraft, when midnight music sounded at the rising of the moon. Then he told the court how, as he stood out upon the broad lawn, he heard the startled pheasant rise from the bushes, and the subdued rustle among the leaves, the significance of which was now as clear to him as the light of day. Then Jules went on to tell the story of his own arrest, and his own narrow escape. He told of the startled mysterious fright of the horse ranger, of the intense, restless excitement of the great dog. Then he told how on the snowy October morning he went to the mausoleum, told about the finding of his late master's body, as it lay deeply buried hidden beneath the snow, by the St. Bernard dog now standing by his side, told of the very body stolen from the grave, told of the robbery from the person of the dead of the sapphire ring from his dead master's hand. As the court listened with rapt attention to the black man's recital of facts now clear to all, it was to them as the recital of some strange, weird, wild romance. At last all those horrid grim formalities came to an end. Then at last was the sentence uttered. Michael Sullivan, it is not my sentence which I pronounce on you, but the sentence of the law. You shall be taken from the prison whence you came, and thence to the place of execution, and hung by the neck until you are dead. Amen. Here again must the veil fall. It was the grey dawn of an early November morning 
when within the privacy of the prison walls a little procession was being formed. It was stated vaguely by the press that the convict was resigned, that he was repentant, that he had spent all the fast-ebbing hours of his life penning an account or in prayer, that the kindly ministrations upon him of the two holy fathers of his church, who by turns since his conviction had never left his cell, had melted the hardened heart. In short, it was said that the culprit had confessed. The last sacrament had been administered. De profundis te domine clamavi, clamavi. Out of the depths, O Lord, I have cried, I have cried to thee. And then, in the angry dawn of that November morning, at the common hangman's hands, was requited the death, and for the murder of Bertram Ganneau, his murderer, Michael Sullivan, died. End of section 31